0: Welcome back to the 188th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the mess in the Middle East and how it could fall on one particular president, how a democratic think tank is now calling for a ceasefire and could sway Biden's opinion, and then a article talking about European countries stepping up to fill in the gap where the U.S. is no longer supporting Ukraine. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So, Who has done the most damage in the Middle East as a U.S. president or a U.S. policy advisor? Is it Kissinger? Is it Reagan? Even though I don't really think Reagan counts, but, you know, if you could make an argument for it, go right ahead. Is it Clinton's appeasement strategy? Is it Bush's outright war? Is it Cheney's pushing for more conduct to be—or, sorry, more operations to be had in the Middle East? Is it Obama's appeasement? Is it Trump's uh, strongman meddling? Is it Biden? Throw it down in the comments section. Love to hear what you have to say. I bet the answers will vary upon when you were raised and how you see certain things and what you've experienced in your life, but I'm curious to hear a whole bunch of different opinions. So, let's jump into our first article that comes from the Washington Examiner. It's Obama's Middle East mess. So, obviously, the Washington Examiner has a very particular view on the whole Middle East crisis and... They have a particular view of Mr. Obama's, and they seem to mesh pretty darn well together. But uh, we're going to explore what they're talking about, what can be laid at his feet, what can't, and then we're going to give a counterpoint with our next article as well. So let's jump to a quote in the middle of the article to roll us off. The first few ones are a little bit too incendiary, and if you want to read them, you can go read them yourself. The articles will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Quote, the terrorists were proud of their butchery. Many live-streamed their murders. Some used their victim's phone to upload the barbarism-sending footage of the murdered loved ones to their family members. And then we have a few more examples of this. Quote, sometimes the outcomes of policies are merely a matter of common sense. When you print excess money, you get inflation. When you declare war on the police, you get more crime. And when you have a bunch of money in the war send a bunch of the money to the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, you get more terrorism. It was the policy of both Obama administrations and the President Joe Biden's administration to fund and appease Iran. Many people have died and more will die as a result. The architects of the Middle East disaster seem unaware of the monster they have helped create, or some of them offered false equivocations and excuses. What they have not done is take responsibility for their failures. So you can see the angle that the Washington Examiner is coming at here. And honestly, there's a lot of people on the same side as this one, given the same talking point, which is... At the end of the day, if the terrorist organizations that are attacking Israel and have the means to attack Israel are being backed by Iran, and Iran wants to destabilize or at least have control over affairs in the Middle East, why would it make sense to send them money? It's a pretty valid question. Whether or not I agree with the entire premise that it all falls on one administration or another, it is a very important question that has to be asked. If there is one nation out of the entire region, which there are more there are more than just one, but if there's one that seems to be pulling the strings and trying to sow divides between the different Muslim nations and the Western powers that have some sort of influence there, and they happen to be ones that we're sanctioning, and then we lift those sanctions, we actually return some of their money to them, the $6 billion. And yes, I understand that it's actually earmarked for humanitarian aid, but the argument that okay, well, the money that they were putting towards humanitarian aid before or food or subsidizing different markets so that their people could actually survive without some of these sanctioned products or without these expensive products from outside markets, they can now put that towards other efforts. And some have accused them of putting it towards the Hamas attack, towards empowering Hezbollah, the Houthis, so on and so forth. Now, while all of that is not 100% provable and you can't necessarily trace the six billion directly back to it. And you can't necessarily say that Iran, even if the sanctions were to be lifted, that they were not to be lifted, that they wouldn't have done this anyway. But the point is, if you have a powerful state in the region that's trying to exert control and you are trying to placate them, rather than telling them, hey, no, you're not the big boy on the block. We're going to be the ones here that bring in a little bit of discipline. We're going to lay down the law. And now, do I 100% agree with that foreign policy position? No, but that's where the Washington Examiner is coming from here. They're trying to give you a realistic view, in their opinion, of how the power dynamics work in the region and the influence that we have in said region. And when we decide to roll down, when we decide to rub Iran's belly rather than slap their behind, then they're going to get away with things like this because they feel as though they're not being choked or they don't have the boot on their neck. There's just a little bit of breathing room and with a little bit of breathing room with a group that is so determined, and this is another worldview. Some people don't agree with this worldview, but the National Review most definitely does, the, uh, with some little bit of breathing room, they are going to try to exert their will. They're not going to try to conform expecting the boot to come back down. They're going to take that breathing room and try to exert their will rather than having somebody else's will exerted on them, which does make sense. I, I don't disagree with that at all. If America was given a little bit of wiggle room between our trade war with China and we were able to uh, reshore a lot of our domestic goods and we were able to use that maybe, you know, a little bit of extra money in order to fund major projects that could make us more competitive with China, I wouldn't put it past us at all to do that because that is in our best interest, and we don't want China to be dictating or to have any sort of control over where our economy might be going. I'm not saying that's a realistic situation, but I'm saying if that was to happen, is do you expect somebody, when you give them a little bit of breathing room, to say, oh, he's being gracious, they're being gracious, you know what, we we should conform now, or are you going to be the angry bear that fights back, like, oh, okay, I got a second here, I'm going to take it while I can, and maybe I'll be able to throw off the people that have been stepping on my neck for years upon years. Now, it depends on your worldview. Some people are more, how should I say, confrontational, some people are more appeasement-oriented, but the National Review's worldview is pretty darn clear in this article, Uh, Quote, this is another quote talking about Mr. Obama and some of his comments, or sorry, President Obama. Quote, speaking to the Pod Save America podcast, a podcast run by former Obama aides Tommy Wiener and John Favreau, Obama said, quote, you have to admit that nobody's hands are clean, that all of us are complicit to some degree. He added that what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. But then he went on to justify it, saying, quote, What is also true is that the occupation of what's happening to Palestine is unbearable, end quote. The former president is trying to explain why the mass murder of Jewish civilians for which he, by empowering Iran and subsidiaries such as Hamas, bears considerable responsibility. Where Obama offers patronizing lectures, he should engage in self-reflection and apologize. So you can see they're calling him out here. And yes, I understand that the Obama comments, for a lot of people, they do resonate, which is there are different sides to this story. And pretending that you can't see the other one, pretending that you can't empathize with the other one, either one, you're purposely being blind because you don't want to hear another opinion, or two, you have become so locked in your worldview that you can't actually understand somebody else's opinion. You can't even acknowledge that there is some little bit of truth to it. And when Obama says what he's saying here, it resonates because people are tired of the narratives from one side or the other who want to all be in lockstep and all have a coherent view and also already have their pre-existing political convictions. So therefore they're likely to come down on one side or another, but that also does not mean that he is not culpable. And he that is also does not mean that he can brush this off and say, ah, we all have our hands on this. Yes, we all may have our hands on this, but do you and I, listening to this, unless you are a former president, which I don't know why you'd be listening to this, but thank you for joining, Mr. President. But my point is, are you and I able to genuinely affect Iranian uh, policy, foreign policy? Are we able to dictate what we're going to do in the Middle East? Are we able to completely uproot a system that's in place and implement one that we want to see? No. No. But guess who does have a semblance of power in that case? Guess who gets to dictate foreign policy? Guess who can change the ship, the direction of the ship, if he so chooses? Oh, wait, that's right, the President of the United States. So to pretend as though, oh, yes, we are all not clean of this. Sure, we're all not clean of this. Maybe some of us are just, you know, we're complicit. We don't really care, so we don't push for change. But does that actually make you any less complicit? Because that's the question we're going for here. If you wanted to judge the scale of complicitness, I would say the public's like 5%. The president's like 70%. eh, 60%. And then the other 35 are the people around him in in the foreign uh, affairs division of any given bureaucracy. So, come on, President Obama. You can't wipe your hands clean of this, no matter how much you want to, no matter how much you want to spread the blame. And you very well could have changed how we interact with Iran. But no, you went to them with a deal. You said, hey... I'm going to do what we did with China. I'm going to give you a deal, and I'm going to try to bring you into the fold, and I'm going to try to give you incentives. I'm going to give you the carrot rather than the stick. And guess what? That is so nice of you. But the carrot has to come with a pretty darn big stick. Look what happened with China. We invited them into the Western system, and they have started to eat our lunch. They have been very, very free-market oriented. They have brought a little bit of capitalism into their market system while maintaining authoritarian control within their uh, political system. And just because we see improvement in one sector doesn't mean we're going to see improvement in another sector. Just because you see Iran possibly slow down the production of nuclear weapons, which is still arguable, uh, even under the deal, doesn't mean they're going to be any less authoritarian. It doesn't mean that, you oh, you invite them to all these conferences, so suddenly they're going to be less strict on their women and not force them to wear hijabs and actually go to school and get a proper education— no, just because one thing changes doesn't mean it changes the equation somewhere else. Now, you know, maybe in some cases it does. Maybe if you provide enough small amount of freedoms to the people and they uprise against the government, sure. But if you are actively working with the government in place that is authoritarian and crushing their citizens and not letting the boot up, well, you're also giving them a little bit of breathing room to exercise their control their influence throughout the region while still not being sanctioned or as heavily what's the word I would be looking for here uh, hated by the United States in the world stage then they're going to take advantage of that and look they're more oppressive than they were Ah, more oppressive than they were they've been pretty darn oppressive and they're not letting up let's put it that way. But, you know, Washington Examiner, maybe they got on my cynical side. Maybe they spoke to me a little bit because, of course, there's more to this than meets the eye. And, of course, there's another article that I spoke about about a think to actually, you know, I'll just go to Mother Jones and I will read you the headlines so I don't have to repeat it twice. A leading think tank for the Democratic establishment calls for a ceasefire now. So, we've heard a lot of chants for ceasefire now. We have heard a lot of comments from people online, from people protesting that, hey, we need to you know really address this. We need to have a humanitarian pause. We need to have a humanitarian ceasefire is the new language they're using. But I don't want to just, you know, quote them and give the gloss over. Let's go straight into what the article says. Quote, the Center for American Progress has now said the word that the Biden administration and most Democrats in Congress have been most unwilling to utter since Israel began to bomb Gaza, ceasefire. In a significant development, CAP, perhaps the most influential think-take within the Democratic establishment, published an article on Friday asking the Biden administration and Congress to urge an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. The article is written by President Patrick Gaspard and Senior Director for National Security and International Policy Allison McManus. Gaspard later said on Twitter, "We need a ceasefire now." The post lays out five actions that the administration and Congress should prioritize immediately, and we will most definitely jump into those. So, why are why is this think tank so important? One, because it provides a lot of policy prescriptions for. Democrats. It tries to speak to a certain, I don't want to say populist, but it has a more of the people kind of mindset. It tells the Democrats to some degree what the people are thinking and the rationale behind it. And also it has multiple members who are former major democratic actors in different administrations. So there is a power conglomerate here that you can't just ignore if you're on the democratic side of the aisle Most recently, at the protest, I believe it would have been on Thursday, if I'm not mistaken, you saw even Hakeem Jeffries get up there with Mike Johnson, the Senate, sorry, the House minority and majority leader, and they were both saying, hey, we're going to support Israel. We're not going for a ceasefire. But the people on the ground, and let's be clear, I don't actually think it's a large majority of everybody. I think it's probably a very loud minority that actually wants a proper ceasefire and doesn't expect Israel to defend itself. But this think tank is now bringing it to the forefront and they're going to be challenging some of these democratic lawmakers and some of these democratic leaders to really reconsider. And now if some democratic lawmakers and thinkers or leaders have been saying, well, you know, I kind of want a ceasefire, but we're going to tow the party line here. Now they have an excuse to back out. Now they have, well, hey, look, this is one of our brightest think tanks. This has some of our greatest guys behind it. There's great rationale here. We've trusted them for a long time. They've been a part of the system. Now those people who wanted a ceasefire but were quiet about it, they have a way out. So I want to talk about another part that they're highlighting here, and it is kind of showing the attack from one side, and how it affected Israel, and then attack from the other side, and how it's affecting Gaza. is trying to outline all of the people that have been hurt so far in this conflict. Quote, the, the, since the brutal attack by Hamas on October 7th, I claimed the lives of roughly 1,200 people. And yes, in my previous uh, episodes when the number was 1,400, I quoted that. They have since revised it down. Uh, this is an amendment to all those. I don't feel like in going back and commenting on every single one of them, but I was... Miss correct uh, or I was wrong. I was stating the numbers that we thought at the time this is a correction. Now, I don't know the formal way to go through a correction. So there you go. You got it. Quote, Israel has conducted a war on Hamas in Gaza. More than 11,000 people, including more than 4,600 children, have been killed during the assault, according to the local health ministry. At different points, Israel has either completely or severely restricted access to food, water, fuel, and electricity. The United Nations estimates that 1.4 million people in Gaza, more than half of the population, are now internally displaced. Gaspard and McManus McManus is another person that was working on this. She's the president of the foreign policy. Uh, section of the think tank. Sorry if I misquoted her official title. Quote, state that Israel's collective punishment has brutalized thousands of innocent civilians and only jeopardized prospects for lasting peace. Under international law, collective punishment is clearly defined as a war crime. The article accuses both Hamas and Israel of serious human rights violations. And there you go. This is the play down towards the middle. And while I could definitely agree that Hamas is definitely, definitely committed war crimes, and I would say Israel's is not as straightforward as they would like to make it sound, but also I do agree that if you are punishing a entire locale in order to hurt a small segment of the population, then yes, it, it actually affects more than just that small segment of the population. That could be very well categorized as a... Uh, collective punishment issue. I would then ask Hamas, uh, why do you not care about the people that you are putting in harm's way? Because Israel has done this exact thing before. Hamas very well knows that in order to get them, they are likely to, or Israel is likely to shut down key infrastructure and limit resources that get in there so Hamas doesn't get access To them. So if Hamas actually cared about the Palestinian people, why wouldn't they try to move their operations away? Oh, wait, that's because they would lose their strategic advantage by moving away from the people that they can claim, oh, these are innocents. So then when the news comes out that there's a bombing on a Hamas facility and some innocents were killed, it plays well for them. And also it makes Israel have to be even more cautious because they want to limit civilian lives, the death of civilians as much as they can, which is why you've probably seen a few more of these on-the-ground strikes, which actually limit more casualties rather than some different air raids and bombings more recently as... The bombings have slowed down. So, yes, while I understand where these guys are coming from, I think they're trying to blanket it as both sides committing war crimes. I would say one war crime is, one, uh, much more heinous, but, two, that doesn't mean that it's any uh, more impactful in the decision-making. I would say the other one is a direct result of somebody else committing a war crime. If you're using... (laughs) So, I'm not saying that a war crime justifies a war crime. What I'm saying is that one side is obviously using the tenets of international law to their advantage to try to stop Israel from moving forward, and Israel's saying, no, you're such a threat that we still have to move forward. Does that justify war crimes? Not necessarily. Other thing is, I'm not Israeli. Israelis, go do what you have to do. We'll make comments about it over here in the United States. All I hope is that when we go do our thing, you don't directly get involved and You criticize us just like we're criticizing you. Keep us honest, and hopefully it will work out better for everybody. But who freaking knows? But the article doesn't quite end there. So there's one more thing, and this is the part more about the ceasefire. Quote, CAP's published paper goes beyond a ceasefire as well. The author's secondary priority is supporting Israel's defense needs. Their plan doing so differs from what they've been what has been put forward by the Biden administration Gaspard and McManus specifically reject sending offensive weapons likely to be used unlawfully such as 155 millimeter artillery shells the administration has not moved to limit military aid to the more defensive weapons favored by CAP instead the administration has proposed sending Israel 14 billion of mostly military assistance with no strings attached And this is where I think this is actually a a good way to go about it. If we want to legitimately sell them weapons and sell them arms so they can use it for attack purposes, there you go. That is a free market solution. That is a free market transaction. But if you're going to give it an aid, it should not be offensive. It should be defensive because in giving them offensive weapons we're basically saying yeah we're giving you the go-ahead to attack no no we're going to give you the right to defend your sovereignty anything else any attacking that you want to do needs to be on your dime i think that is pretty reasonable i think there's a deeper argument that definitely could be had there and i'd definitely be willing to be persuaded but i like what they're saying here and at the end of the day i would prefer this rather than calls for a ceasefire Just limit the type of weapons that we can send them. Don't escalate it like we did with Ukraine, saying, oh, well, we're only going to give them this. Well, actually, then we're going to give them this. Well, it appears now that we're going to have to give them this. No, say we're only giving you defensive weapons. There you go. Done. If you want to buy the offensive weapons, get them on loan from us. Sure, that's great, as long as we are going to have a a check in the mail or a written contract saying you're going to pay us back. But Giving them outright offensive weapons is basically a go-ahead to justify whatever they're doing and say they directly have our backing in an offensive war rather than protecting their sovereignty. I think that's a pretty reasonable, reasonable position, and I like that from Mr. Gaspard in Mac Manus. All right, so let's jump to our last article that comes from the New York Times. This one talks about more war, of course, And it is, Europe moves to fill weapons gap amid doubts about U.S. commitment to Ukraine. And it starts off with, Germany, Norway, Britain, and others are increasing weapon production to help Kiev. But the aid may be coming too late as winter looms and Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russia stalls. So... Obviously, the aid package for about sixty-one billion that Biden was trying to bundle together with Israel aid and was trying to send over to Ukraine has definitely stalled. They have passed a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A budget resolution, a clean budget until January, so they can discuss each line item differently. And they said, "Hey, separate out Ukraine and Israel, and we'll have a vote on that." And Biden didn't want to do that, so now with Biden not necessarily getting his way with the fact that the elections are going to be coming up here in a year, it's possible that a different president is in there who has a completely different stance on Ukraine, Trump, then a lot of these European countries are saying, okay, we can't necessarily rely on the United States anymore, so we're going to have to pony up a little bit on our own. Quote, faced with growing American reluctance to send more military aid to Ukraine, European leaders are moving to fill the gaps, vowing new support for Kiev as it battles Russia in a war in Europe's backyard. So this is a comment from the Dutch defense minister. Quote, we really have to step up our game here. And he said this at a forum in uh, Senglad Institute. It's a think tank that's funded by the Dutch government. So they're starting every single European nation and their private uh, military contractors are starting to produce more of the 155 millimeter artillery shell, the one we just talked about in the last Israel article. Right now, the U.S.'s output is around 720,000 per year, and they're trying to up all of their production across Europe to basically match that. Next year, America said production could be up to 960,000 per year, so we don't know if they can necessarily match that, but we also know that not all of that is going to go to Ukraine, and some of it in all of these countries will be saved to build up their own stockpiles as we seem to be going in a direction of more war and more tension throughout the rest of the world. So I think that all of these factors and all of these different logistical problems it's going to make it hard for Ukraine to keep on fighting because without the U.S. So let me just put into perspective. Biden said another five, sorry, $61 billion. Right now, I believe they have about $4.9 billion left from our last deal. So 61 extra billion. Guess how much Europe is contributing. Uh, let me do it by a country. Guess how much Germany is contributing right now. Uh, I'll tell you, it's not that much. It's currently about, let me pull up the statistics here. It's about 5.8 billion. 5.8 billion. That is less than a sixth of what we are providing to Ukraine right now. Actually, I believe it's less than, yeah, it's less than a seventh of what we're providing to Ukraine right now on our own. So all these European countries having to step up and back this without the U.S. being directly involved and having a harder time getting some of these bills passed, it's going to be extremely tricky. Quote, in a warning sign, the EU appears likely to fail in early tests of its ability to sustain backing for Ukraine. A much-touted pledge to donate 1 million rounds of 155-millimeter caliber shells within one year to Ukraine is now widely expected to fall short. The million will not be reached. We must assume it. Germany's defense minister, Boris Portris, said this week, acknowledging the bloc will miss the March 2024 deadline. European officials have long worried that rising Republican opposition to the military support that the United States is sending to Ukraine, 45 billion weapons and other equipment so far, would diminish the leading American role in funding the war should President Biden lose re-election. End quote. And it's very interesting to me that they're looking this far down the line, honestly. The fact that they are looking out towards the next election, which at this point is practically 11 11 and a half months away, says that they really expect this thing to continue going on that long. I think the U.S. is going to push for a ceasefire or some sort of treaty before then just because we're starting to have Uh, too many wars all over the place that we're trying to support. We've kind of achieved what we wanted, which was to diminish the Russian capabilities for a little bit. And now we're going to back off and we'll let Putin be the aggressor next time and do the exact same thing if he tries to continue going for Ukraine or he tries to go for a different nation, which I highly doubt because a lot of them in that area are uh, NATO allies. Maybe he'll go somewhere closer to the Asia Minor area and try to invade there and say, oh, there are ethnic Russians here. We need to bring them back into Russia. I don't know. But I think our strategic goals, not completely, but for the most part, have been met. And I think at the end of the day, no offense to us, but we're pretty heartless. We're like, okay, hey, we got what we needed done. Biden realizes it's a challenging political position to be in nowadays. So Hey, Zelensky, you know, the Europeans aren't going to be able to back you and Trump may be getting in there and he probably won't give you a deal that's as favorable as I will because you know I've been backing you from the very beginning, Mr. Zelensky and he's probably going to push for some sort of ceasefire or some sort of deal in order to also get it done under his administration so he looks better going into the midterms. That would be my guess if I had to play it out, but these European leaders are talking like, okay, hey, we need to make sure that in case a Republican does get in there and the war is still going, we will be ready to support Ukraine. And I don't know whose prediction is right. I'm an American citizen, but I also don't know all the dynamics and the political world as well as some of these other politicians may. So maybe they know something that we don't. But hey, we're going to, like I said, we're not trying to be too cynical today. We're trying to also be optimistic, and that's why we're going to jump to our daily delight. And this one comes from Parade Pets. The headline goes, Moment Golden Retriever Becomes BFS with Pup BFF with puppy siblings is beyond precious. So yeah, you know, sometimes when you got a new sibling, things kind of get changed up. The dynamics in the house get a little odd and things can feel a little weird and sometimes the kids don't get along. But eventually these two did. Quote, Sammy is the older dog and it's safe to say that he felt some sort of way when Charlie entered the family, it looked like he wanted nothing to do with the dog right from the beginning. They kept their distance from one another and he didn't even want to play with him either. He would always snap at him. But then there was a little change in Sammy's cute little heart. Quote, But everything changed then when one day he finally warmed up and began to adjust. The video continued while showing clips of the adorable love these two have for each other they cuddled they were playing sleeping and having lots of fun and if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or you want to read any of today's articles there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button also down there you can find the link to the podcast on spotify pocketcast google podcast as well as podvine and the link to the twitter handle at your daily flip where i post a twitter tirade every tuesday and thursday a little bit shorter a little bit less formal So with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.